Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, it's my delight to have Pierre Van Vepera, who is the Chief Commercial Officer at Grow Biotech PLC, as my guest. Pierre, hello. Thank you. Good morning, Marcus. Really good to be with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Tell me, could you give me 90 seconds on your background and what you do at the moment? Yeah, I can, of course. So, start with the fact that I'm Dutch, trained as a German teacher, dabbled a bit in things like philosophy and, and stuff like social linguistics. Very interesting. Then worked as a teacher for two years and decided I wasn't going to do that for the rest of my life. Changed into pharmaceutical industry as a sales rep. Did that, first line manager, second line manager, national sales manager. Changed into marketing. Thought that wouldn't be too difficult. Actually turned out to be not that difficult. Very interesting change. And then from 2000 onwards, had business unit director roles, marketing and sales director roles, initially in the Netherlands, and then came to the UK for Wyeth, running the immunology business here. When Wyeth was bought by Pfizer, moved over to MSD, uh, ran initially again the immunology business, then primary care, focused on diabetes. And from then onwards, moved to global diabetes giant Novo Nordisk, again in sales, sales marketing, and business director roles. Did that for a couple of years and then was approached for managing director role with a company called Ashfield Healthcare, the commercial side of that. And they are the biggest outsourcing organization in healthcare, reps, MSLs, medics, remotes, uh, anything that you would need to increase flexibility in your, in your field organization. Did that, uh, realized that we had to make some significant changes in the value proposition that those companies had because they, over the last couple of years in the competition, started basically to compete on price versus on, on added value. So we started to work on that. And the company looked at kind of global developments in these outsourcing, where the U.S. is a couple of years behind Europe. So growth in the U.S. was significant. And we, we looked at Europe and thought, ah, oh, this is not really going to go anywhere. So we kind of maintain where it is which is not necessarily what I like to do. I'm not a watch-the-shop person. I want to go the shop. So from that, move to my current role in Go Biotech as Chief Commercial Officer, which basically means that I take care of all the healthcare professional, patient-facing side of our business. So we're in medicinal cannabis, which is a young and high-potential area, especially in the UK, but also globally. It's an adventure startup we've started in 2008 very exciting learning a lot but also in a position where i can combine all these things that i learned in my various roles in pharma into using them in, in in this company and it's it's fantastic i'm enjoying it i also see from your background that you're involved in investment so you're involved in a, a fund where that happened uh, and you mm. look at businesses and you're looking at scale-up potential. I'm really curious to see what filters you're using to identify where you should invest and what uh, really makes for a good bet versus one that you probably shouldn't make. Yeah, I think, you know, I think I have a big thing about complexity and complicated, the difference between those things. Somehow I found out during my career that I seem to have some kind of talent, chest pounding, on cutting through a lot of crap, excuse me, around. That's all right. Um, 
they've had a lot worse than that. <laughs> You've had a lot worse. Getting to the core of things, people confuse complex with complicated. Setting up a video recorder or, sorry, or a DVD or whatever may be complicated, but it's not difficult. Just follow the manual and you get there in the end. Looking yeah. at complexities is very different. Bigger organizations, organizations that grow, organizations that during that growth lose some kind of control about what they're doing, especially with companies that started with a really great idea. I mean, take IBM in the past, Codex, Xerox. There are so many examples of companies that started going and never questioned what they were actually trying to do because it works. At the same time, they became more and more complex in terms of stuff getting from the front line to senior management and decision making. And you see a breakdown in those. A friend of mine in the Netherlands, Ja Peters, he, he wrote an article a long time ago and it basically translated into what restructure are you working for? The companies seem to be in constant restructures. Companies seems to be in seem to be in constantly trying to find the answer to what is going to drive them to success. And when I make a lot of decisions, I look at how companies drive that complexity, how companies deal with that complexity, how companies are able to focus on the one, two, three things that are really going to make a difference instead of doing other things that are not going to make a difference. It's refreshing to hear this. I don't know if you've read Safi Bakal's book, Loon Shots. It's all about how innovation eventually gets stifled as mm. organizations grow because, they, first of all, they hang on too much to what made them successful in the past and they stop innovating. And uh, bureaucracy and politics, it becomes more politically expedient for middle and senior management to shoot yeah. ideas down. And they don't attack themselves. I think what is interesting is my favorite rules is kill your babies. It has a lifespan. Don't hang on too long and don't get out too early. But you've touched on another really interesting point, which is all of these restructures are intended to try and make the system better. But what I think people forget is if they create change from the top, and it's like taking a photograph. If you take a photograph with a, a, an SLR camera, uh, you've got the aperture the uh, shutter speed and you have the ISO number determines the sensitivity of the film or the, um, the chip. If you change one and you don't change the uh, one of the other two, then you're not going to compensate. And so you're going to put the system out of kilter. I think what we see a lot of is as companies grow and they're trying to make these changes, they don't pay enough attention to the entire system. I completely agree with you. We did a, when I took over the primary care team in MSD, I had a team of, what, 400 people, and they just did three restructures in the last five years. Half the people were just sitting there waiting for the next restructure. And they kind of expected me to do that. And I walked onto the stage and I said, we're not going to do this because there is structure is not the answer to a mindset problem. If we don't have the right mindset, we can restructure until the cows come home. And it's not going to solve any problems because we're going to stand here again in a year. I think, well, it didn't change anything. So what is it? We had this question about what is it that actually gets you out of bed? Why are you here? Why are you passionate about what we do? And we did a, we did a big exercise with the team and came up with this logo about fighting for fair patient care. That was the mantra. And it didn't even have to be necessarily about fair patient care, meaning that they would prescribe our, would get our products. but 
we know that in the healthcare system, people land on side tracks, people are on waiting lists, doctors try and fight for getting medication or drugs or therapies to the patients, but because of course they can't. So we focus on supporting them in doing that and improving patient care and thereby improving patient outcomes. And once everybody got behind that, suddenly things had a reason and suddenly things had a meaning again and people really got passionate about it. We still did a restructure a year and a half later because the structure was actually wrong. But what we then had as the outcome of that was a very motivated, driven, and the team understood what what our plans were. The team understood what the strategy was. The team understood what the mission was. And that is so much better. And all these things get lost. If you do change, people need to feel that there is actually change. If you change a bit, but you forget to change the other three things, within a month, everybody goes, well, it's probably still the same because that's still the same. He is still there. That is still doing the same. So what's the difference? People need to feel that change actually is change, and you lead them through that. Then you achieve things. So I completely agree with you. The challenge is to make sure that they're all working towards common purpose. And uh, one of the best examples of this was uh, JCB came up with a campaign, Kill Cat. Mm. Uh, it was simple, it was elegant, and everyone knew what their job was. It was to take market share from Caterpillar. And everyone was working towards that. And in all the companies that I've been talking to, the leaders have helped their team create a common story. Every person in their team could express their story succinctly. And they had a 30-second, a three-minute, a 20-minute story that told the story of why they were in business, who they served who their total addressable market was, the problems that they can resolve, uh, and why they're important to the customer. And in doing that, they were all working towards the same outcome. Instead of individual silos doing a great job at cross-purposes, and I think you've touched on something else which is really important when I asked you about the, uh, the investment there role, is making sure that organizations have a clear direction and a plan that is robust enough and looks far ahead enough so that when they achieve that rapid growth, then they can see when they need to make new hires. They've got budget allocated. There's a trigger point that says, yes, you can recruit. And you're always recruiting ahead of your growth so that you never end up with a traffic jam occurring because sales is ahead of operations, uh, is ahead of customer service, and you don't end up with that negative ripple effect where you start compromising on recruitment, where you start compromising on service quality. Customers suffer, complaints go up. What I'm really curious about is when you're designing a business, so you're in your current business, undoubtedly, I mean, if I remember rightly, the, uh, the medical cannabis market's growing at something like 3,000%. Yeah, you know, all these percentages, once they go over two or three hundred, become very vague anyway. Okay, well, the, the, the point being here, when you're growing at that kind of a scale, if you're not planning ahead, then chances are the wheels are going to come off very quickly. So what do you teach your senior leadership team and your managers to ensure that they are looking ahead? They're working in the present, but they're planning for the future, and they're not stuck in the past. It's almost ingrained in what we do. We because the market is growing very quickly, but it's still in the UK is quite small. So you're on one hand we have conversations with our investors 
about where the long-term future is. On the other hand, you're trying to work with the now and deal with the now and prepare for that longer-term future. So it's in every conversation that we have, we think two, three, four steps. I think four because a little bit much, but try and think ahead strategically about what we need to move. Very concrete example, the market is dominated by a couple of things. Product availability slash supply, which is regulated through import licenses and everything with the MHRA and home office. They are very strict. They are extremely strict, which actually limits the opportunity to import. So we need to talk about that. At the same time, we need to create a situation where we can actually deal with thousands of patients. So once we change that regulation and getting more products in, what do we need to do then? So in every conversation we have, we are thinking ahead and thinking about what will the world look like two or three years from now. It's, it's just, and I think that's what you need to do. I always have these conversations with people, and pharma industry is an ex- excellent example because there are so many data points and market research that you can do to try and help and influence your decision. At some point in time, you can have an overkill of information, this whole paralyzed by analysis. If you wait too long with making a decision, the impact of the decision on the organization will be significantly bigger than if you make the decision earlier in your career. So make a decision now and avoid, you only need to make a small change in your structure, maybe hire one person extra to deal with a certain aspect of the business, which then helps you with not having to do some drastic bit where six months from now, you suddenly have to hire four people to deal with the problem that suddenly became a much bigger problem than when you dealt with it before. So having the long-term vision, having that idea about where you want to go, where you want to add up, end up, and making sure that everybody understands is key in, that, in, in what you, how you operate your business every day. That goes into question everything that you do, challenge everything that you do. When people come to me, or I go to our CEO and there's an issue, I expect people to have a solution to the issue. But I'm not going to accept that solution. I'm going to challenge them to come up with an alternative solution. And if they come up with an alternative, I'm going to send them back again and come up with a third until it becomes really, really difficult to come up with another alternative. Then your thought process been thought processes and been good enough to look at all those things that you kind of can pick from those alternatives and come up with the solution that is actually going to be different and innovative. People too often, oh, God, I have a solution. Yeah, fine, go and do it. And then three weeks later, you think, well, oh, if I'd done that differently. So just consider alternatives. Challenge yourself if you have a solution and think again and keep on doing that. I'm also very much about this whole thing about evolution, innovation, disruption. The world doesn't respond to evolution or stepwise innovation anymore. There's so much going on. You're doing your stepwise innovation and you turn around and somebody has done something disruptive that completely blows everything that you think you were doing was the right out of the water. So don't, don't do little steps. Do big steps. You can only do big steps, again, if you know where those big steps are going to end. Think the unthinkable. We had a conversation in, in Ashfield when I was looking at, uh, I mean, we had 400, 500 people in the field. We did a session where we said, just imagine that next month 
we are not going to have people in the field anymore. It's just going to be done. Nobody wants it anymore. What's the alternative? And start thinking about that because then you can think about what you can do with the people that you have in the field as an added value to make them more valuable to your customers so they will continue doing it. So it again, goes back to this, what's the three-year plan? What's the five-year plan? Long-winding answer. Okay. Well, no, very interesting. And it's uh, sparked a number of thoughts in my mind. It, it suggests to me that you need to have willingness to make decisions with incomplete information. You need to be willing to fail and not punish failure because if you do, then you'll stifle risk-taking. And therefore, it means that you have to hire a certain type of manager who is willing to take those risks and doesn't play it safe. Um, Absolutely. Fair summary? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think think the failure to to fail, when you look at most organizations, and and Harvard Business Review did something a while ago, when when things start going wrong, what's the the knee-jerk reaction? More reports, more KPIs, more measurements, more meetings to look at the problem. What you, in fact, do is to take the people who could make the change out of of their change-making ability and into a reporting ability. You stick 50 KPIs on top of it. Leave people, people in the front line, if you coach them properly, if you train them properly, should know what they have to do to make a change. The problem is that we, in most organizations, underestimate the value of first-line management. I have this thesis that I think that first-line management is probably the weakest link in any bigger organization. And we come up with a strategy, we come up with a plan, we do a big meeting where we explain to everybody what the plan is going to go be, we send the guys out and go and do, go and sell, and we never involve first-line management and how they actually need to coach people to achieve that strategy. So what are the first line managers going to do? They're going to look at their list of KPIs. Surprise, surprise, those KPIs very often don't even support what you're trying to achieve. So they're not allowing their people to to do stuff. They're not allowing their people to make mistakes. And realistically, 70% of what we do doesn't make a difference anyway. (laughs) So so why why don't we focus on the 30% 30 that would make a difference and allow people to experiment? My biggest success, and it's not not about me, but the biggest successes I've seen, I've seen by people being brave, experimenting, challenging their clients, trying to add value by not talking about your product, but talk about solutions and how you can actually help. And get it wrong sometimes. Pick yourself up, learn from it, and do something else. But we need to enable our managers to do that. And I think that's where things go wrong a lot. Well, I couldn't agree more. I think certainly in sales, we did research study last year, a global study, and we identified that only 6% of sales managers are qualified for the job. 94% are not. The most precarious role there is in any business. They get 5% of the global training budget. They don't know how to coach. And what COVID has done is it's exposed that weakness. It hasn't created it, it's exposed it. So a couple of things to build on what you said. This is going to sound almost pejorative, but it's not intended that way. If you look at COVID, COVID is basically an extension of the summer slump that salespeople often claim is out there. (laughs) Uh, 
there is no such thing as a summer slump. If you continue to prospect, there are still people who are in a position to buy and make decisions. Oh, yeah. And if you say this, there's a summer slump, that means that you've lost two to three months in the year. You yep. say there's an Easter slump and a Christmas slump. You've lost another month. So then you've, you've only got seven months of selling time. And in that time, your average salesperson is 25 to 35% productive in any given working day. And they are only in front of customers speaking to them between 12 and 21% of the time. Mm. So seven months, you are getting 4.25 to 7.35% production out of your sales force, which then suggests that maybe there is a problem in understanding because leadership and management have fuzzy thinking. Mark Twain said it brilliantly, which is, you can't believe what your eyes uh, see if your imagination is out of focus. And so what you've just described here is an endemic problem, which is that management is focused on the wrong end of the problem. They're trying to manage. What you've just described is if you tell people what needs to be achieved and you give them free reign to work out how and you coach them through that process, then there is an awful lot of capability and talent to get the job done. And in my book, Making Channel Sales Work, we talk about creating a special forces unit. And I have a theory at the moment, which I suspect is going to make me deeply unpopular, but I'm going to continue uh, espousing it. There is a thing called Price's Law, which says that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in your organization. So 50% of your production will come from a fraction of your resellers or your salespeople. If you have 50, seven are going to be producing 50% and 43 are going to be producing the other 50%. Same thing with your managers, same thing with your channel partners. So there is a very strong argument to use COVID as the God-given excuse to look at your business with a blank sheet of paper and design it as if you are starting from scratch. Because now you have um, the justification for being able to lay off the people who don't produce, help the people who do produce, and recruit people who can support them, and really focus your attention on the bit that matters. And in 12 months' time, you'll be back to where you were in revenue terms, but with three, four, five times the profit. So what I'm curious about is when you look at the businesses that you've been involved with, how did you nurture and attract that top talent? And what did you do to support it so it was performing optimally? There is a point that I was listening to you, what you were saying. There is a gap between strategy and implementation. People come up with all these really, really great strategies, pay large amounts of money to the McKinsey's and everything else, get a report with lots of recommendations, and then don't know how to implement because implementation requires courage, decisions, means that you may need to let people go who've been with the organization for 20 years, but actually outlive themselves or are not, not contribute, contributing anymore, but they're friends and all of these things. And so, again, it goes into, into management being brave enough. One of the best things I've ever done in my life is I had a first-time manager who I found should be a trainer but not a first-time manager because that's where it scales lot. and i spent six months trying to convince him to take up a trainer job and he didn't want to and in the end i said to him, okay so we're now we're now here we have two options you either go or you take that trainer role because i'm not going to let you do what you continue doing what you're doing he took the trainer role and i still got christmas cards from him not thanking me for pushing him into that but he is happy as larry 
doing that. So you you be brave enough and make those decisions. Be brave enough to share with your team what the plan is. And you know what? People who don't sign up to it, you need to help them get to and at some point in time they have to make a decision for themselves whether they want to be part of it. Well, this thing about this the, this thing about the, the bus, the bus is leaving. I'm gonna do everything I can to get you on the bus. I'm gonna get a taxi to pick you up from home, drive you to the bus station, get somebody to pack lunch, carry you on to get you to the bus, but you have to get on it yourself. That's the bit that you need to get to with your team. If they get on the bus, they believe in it, they'll fight for it. That's where that, that thing when I was in work, fighting for fair, fair patient care, they believed in it and they fought for it. There were people who were uncomfortable with it. Those people will leave by themselves because there's a degree on how long you can stay uncomfortable in your job. So you create an atmosphere where people want to be where they are, not stay because it's comfortable to stay. I think that that would be my way of doing it. You mentioned McKinsey. I remember this was 25 years ago. May have changed, but I doubt it. I said to the managing partner, I asked him, so what's your ideal customer look like? And he looked over his shoulder, conspiratorially closed the door, and he said, you know, really, it's a new chief executive with a vision. They have a hostile board. He brings us in to write a thousand page report at a thousand pounds a page. And he says, McKinsey told me to do it. And then report sits on the shelf and gathers dust. Of course. At that point, I suddenly realized just how broken that model is. Because uh, actually, that it's not really delivering the value that it should. And I think one of the really interesting things that I'm seeing is that small teams of really committed individuals can do amazing things and then they can attract other people like them and chris anderson talks about the long tail amazon makes more money by selling one book once uh, than it does by selling the hundreds of thousands of harry potter books at massive discounts and uh, the same thing uh, applies you were talking about look for the disruption and uh, another great example of this is the the pirates in the 16th century the pirates, there were only 200 ships, and they managed to fight off the British Navy with 20,000 sailors and mm. the fight of the British Empire behind them. And what they did was they'd get together, sack Panama, and then go their separate ways. And it was impossible for them to uh, get caught, so they had to pick them off one by one. And I think what I'm seeing more and more is that kind of model. I think p- people forget that history can teach us an awful lot. Yes. Uh, we don't learn from it, are bound to repeat the same mistakes. But there are fabulous opportunities there. When we look at disruption, you're operating in a very disruptive space. I suspect Big Pharma hates you. And there's an awful lot of pressure. They're, they're probably not queuing up to uh, to embrace what we're doing. Uh, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, I remember um, a pal of mine heard a talk by Goldman Sachs in 2018. And the subject of the talk was, is curing people a good business model? Yeah. Uh, the answer is probably no, isn't it? It's not. But the moral corruption that would come up with something like that is terrifying. Uh, anyway, let's not get down that road. Yeah, but you know what? On, on the other hand, what is driven by the... You, we had these conversations when we were when I was in Nova Nordisk. Nova Nordisk had this ambition, and they said, we want to cure diabetes. 
And investors challenged that and basically said, so what happens if you do? You're going to take yourself out of business. But the conversation you need to have is what is that cure going to cost? And that's the constant. Healthcare is a very difficult, constant balance between what is the value of a life? How much are we, are we prepared to invest? How much are we prepared to invest in a cancer treatment? How much are we prepared to invest in some rare diseases? And it's driven by the fact there is a limited amount of money to go around. I don't think pharma companies are in this, we want to keep patients, you want to cure patients. But it becomes more and more difficult because of the limited funding that is around to do that. And that's that's a governmental, that's a societal decision, isn't it? You can look at the NHS and you can, you can compare the NHS with other organizations. Oh, is the NHS good? Is it not good? What people constantly forget is that although percentage-wise, it looks like we are on par with other countries in terms of investment into the NHS, 9 10% of GDP, the per capita GDP of the UK is half of what Germany is. So the 10% in Germany... Are twice is twice as much money as the ten percent in the UK. So you're, it looks it looks nice on a percentage wise, but if you compare the Netherlands, the Netherlands spends 120 billion euros on their healthcare system with what 17 million people, 18. If you would scale that up to the UK, they would have they would the UK would spend 400 billion. That would be the same scaled up number. We're not. We're doing 120 billion. So. And that's what people forget. We are fundamentally under-investing in our healthcare system. But that's a whole different conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm getting excited about that. Back to scaling up then. Back to scaling up. What are the three questions that people should be asking, but they don't? I think people should ask, where can I be brave? What can I learn from things that happened around me? And... You should probably look at who are the people that I should hire with me to achieve that. Those will be my three quick questions. I have to agree. I mean, in terms of hiring, what I see is some really bad hiring practice because most organizations will hire for things like skills, historical experience, and historical results. Yeah. All that tells me is PM may have been good in the past. It doesn't tell me whether he will be good in the future. It doesn't tell me whether you were lucky whether you were just in the right place at the right time or you were, you were being carried. And they don't look at predictors of success. So in terms of predictors of success, what we've identified are habits, mm-hmm. attitudes, beliefs, and values, and cognitive abilities are very reliable predictors of success. Yeah. So in terms of founders and leaders, what are the habits that you see the best founders and leaders engage in on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. They don't need anyone to put a foot on their neck in order to do it. They don't make excuses. They just do those things every day, every week, every month. I guess you're looking at similar things, not being afraid to fail, being brave enough to tie things, challenging yourself, constantly questioning yourself. And going back to where we started, complexity and all of that, Figure out the two or three things that make a difference. Too often, we talked about sales reps, good sales reps, bad sales reps, whatever. The good ones will focus on two or three things, 
throw everything at that and make a difference. The not-so-good ones will have a list of 50 things, 10 times as many customers that they're trying to focus on, focus on how often can I call people, da 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 and we'll come up with all these excuses about, well, it's holiday time and their kids were sick and all of that stuff. If people see the value of what you offer, they will buy, whether it's Christmas or summer holiday or half the organization is off sick. What you have failed to do is show those people what the value is. I had a friend a long time ago in the Netherlands. He was a behavioral psychologist. And someday, one morning, he called me and he said, can you send me your five best reps and your five worst reps? I said, fine, but what do you want to do with them? And he said, I want to stick them into a functional MRI and I'll do a sales call with them whilst they're in that thing. And and I'm pretty convinced that I will see that different parts of their brain will light up with the good good ones than with the not so good ones. Oh, I'd love to see that. It, it was it was amazing. It was amazing, and and I mean, he he wanted to turn it into some kind of predictive model. Don't do a job interview. Just stick me in the functional MRI, <laughs> and if it looks if it looks like that, you should hire me. But the essence of what he said was, and you saw it. I saw the results. What he said is, if you if you are positive, you're prepared, you know what you want to do, you've prepared your opening statement, and you are focused, and you are not afraid, you will go in, you will, at some point in time, ask for the business. And if your client says no, you say, oh, okay, why not? And you see that as an opportunity to continue the conversation. The people that fail are the people that are afraid of that answer. So they don't ask the question. They'll go in, and they avoid asking for the business. They'll avoid asking for commitment. They will, they will have this, oh, you're a smart person. I've given you all the data. You should make that decision yourself. And they don't ask. And they go away. And they go, I'm going to come back in six weeks and see how you are. Those are the guys who are not successful. But they, and they talk because they fill gaps. They talk because they're afraid about silence. And that's where the leading by example comes in. I, I always say this thing, kind of raising your eyebrow is probably the best open question that you can do in the middle of silence. Your client says something and you know he's bullshitting. And you just look at them and you raise your eyebrow and you just shut up. And you force them to explain themselves. Those are the guys who are going to win. I think it was Miller Hyman about 15 years ago did some research and they went round and they followed reps and they timed the amount of time on average a rep could shut up before they had to fill the silence with the sound of their own voice. Yep. Have a stab at what the average length of time was. I have no idea. 0.6 of a second. Really? <laughs> I'm not surprised. And in fact, Gong is one of our partners, and they measured the silence. And on average, it's 0.7 of a second on a phone call. They've recorded over 10 million sales calls, and the average is 0.7 of a second. Now, the difference is the top reps, will bear a silence for between 3 and 11 seconds. Now, yeah. 11 seconds is a very long time. That's, that's eternity, yes. <laughs> that is difficult. But it works. You are, who blinks first, isn't it? That's the bit. Well, and this is the, the other thing that really amazes me, that there is not enough emphasis on training people to listen. Um, why are we still, in this day and age, 
have we not cottoned on that I have never listened or questioned my way out of a sale. I've talked my way out of several, but yeah. I've never listened or questioned them. And the two things that we don't teach in school are questioning and listening. So we teach people to stay there and just sit there and do nothing and be passive, but genuine listening, empathic, full body listening. Why is it that that isn't part of every sales training program? I think there are two reasons for it. I think the first one is we are still so focused on KPIs. So you do, you do market for it, and pharmaceutical industry is, is the best example of that. Key message follow-up. So we defined the three key messages about this product that we want to go out. So what do we do? We do message follow-up, and we'll check, and you're, as a sales rep, you'll be, you'll be rated, you'll be incentivized on what your key message follow-up results are. So what are you going to do? You're going to throw out key messages because clearly you get a bonus when you do the right thing. You should get a bonus for how much you sell. You shouldn't get a bonus for how often you use your key messages. You should be enabled to, in a call, use one of them because you know that that's the one that's going to nail the sale, but you're not because your manager may be sitting next to you and your manager is just counting how often you do the other two. That's just fundamentally wrong. It's really interesting. I did some training with a big pharma company a few years back, and I was training a very underperforming sales team in the diabetes area. And what was fascinating was they were being assessed, and I took some of the lowest performing reps, and they came in one, two, and four out of the entire sales force in the UK after a couple of training sessions where we taught them not to talk about the company, not to talk about the product, but to focus on having the prospect tell their story. And all they did was they then tailored their message at the end, which is, so if I can help you do A, B, and C, is there any reason why you wouldn't buy it? Exactly, exactly. I mean, it goes again back to management, doesn't it? How do you but understand, having worked for Northern Orders, made kind of a big full circle from a Danish company to philosophy when I did when I was at university. The Danes obviously have Kierkegaard, and I'm not going to make this too clock, but Kierkegaard, <laughs> Kierkegaard did these really interesting things about had these he had these ten rules about what does make people tick. One of the first ones is people will do things that are valuable to them. People will do because you're ultimately everybody is quite selfish. So if it, if it does something for you, you will do it. We see these people that are lazy. We think they're lazy. In work, they're lazy. But in the weekend, they run two marathons or something like that. So they're clearly not lazy. They're just not motivated. They're just not motivated. So find a way to make that work thing motivated for them. Find a trigger that changes their perception about work or what they are supposed to do. And you get them motivated and you have the best people. So it's stuff like that. Go, And that's what we need to teach managers. We need to teach managers to find out what makes their people tick. Because if you uh, find that out, then you can coach them. Again, that's something that must start in recruitment. And yep. what I see all the time, I mean, I ask this question of managers and leaders all the time. So when you sat down at the interview process or when you sat down with your salespeople and you found out what personally motivated them, so you could tie their personal motivations, their corporate objectives, what was that conversation? And 999 times out of a 1,000, I haven't had that conversation. No, not. And it's just crazy. Because you're supposed to do a competency-based interview. Well, but sales people (laughs) in sales 
because for their reasons. They come to work for their reasons. It's not, the, and money is almost never the real driver. And um, money normally, I, I was a headhunter for salespeople for 10 years, and money normally came sixth. Yeah. What they really craved, actually, was recognition. They wanted yes. to be recognized. And the best leaders are fabulous at two things. One is understanding their motivation, and two is recognizing them for their work. And yep. they did that through coaching, through regular contact. The best leaders I've come across spend 50% of their time coaching. Yep. They're not stuck behind a spreadsheet. They're thinking, abdicating responsibility. And I've just been reading a book by Patrick Lencioni called The Motivation or the, the Motive. And it's all about why leaders are motivated. Some leaders are motivated because they think they've earned their stripes. Others are motivated because they want to make a difference. Yes. And it's those leaders that matter. Those are the ones who make the greatest impact. Because again, I think where so many things go wrong, I can't remember where I read it. I think it might have been in the medium. And it's if you think everyone who criticizes you are wrong, is wrong, you're an idiot. And we see this time and again with leaders who are brittle. They don't cope well with criticism. And so they punish it. And that will stifle growth. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, how, how many leaders do you see who say, I'm sorry, it's a bit too much maybe, but I've made mistakes on purpose just to show people. I mean, they're not, they're not massive, but you need to actually show people that you can fail and then you apologize for it. You sit down with guys and say, why did this happen? How did this happen? You work it out and move on. The only way you enable people to be brave enough and comfortable to experiment and to fail is if they see that you can do it too. And if you fire everybody or just move everybody out who is uncomfortably in criticizing you, you're never going to get anywhere. The only thing you create this fear, the only thing you create is people who will do everything that you say. I think one of the key things that you that you talk, how do people become managers? You're a good sales rep and then you become manager because you were successful. Crazy. Being a good sales rep doesn't qualify you to be a good manager. I read this thing the other week, somebody did a some recruitment agency, they did a big boardroom. How do you think the board would function better? And I think 42% of board members said that they felt that the board actually wasn't aligned on the strategy. How shocking is that? You're in there. But that goes again to recruitment. How do you recruit people into boards? 70% of recruitment into boards is because you know somebody who knows somebody who lands up in the board. That's well, not how you build a successful organization, is it? This then points to another couple of truths that are irrefutable. The first one is ambiguity or misalignment at the top leads to politics at the bottom. Yep. And what you end up creating is silos and fiefdoms and empire building. And I think one of the most important qualities of great leaders that I'm coming across is that they encourage constructive conflict. They want people to fight. They want people with diverse views and opinions. Uh, and in the same way, you know, when someone comes to you with a uh, solution, challenge it and make them go away and come up with a better one, better one, better one. Yep. Um, when I was talking to Tom Shodolf, he said that they had knockdown fights in the boardroom <laughs> or in the sale, uh, with the sales team. And then at the end of it, they would make a decision and then everyone stands by it. 
That's really important. If you're afraid of conflict as a manager, you are going to fall into one of two categories. You will either be a persecutor, and then you will stifle any innovation, any risk-taking, or you will become a rescuer, someone who helps without boundaries or permission. And what that means is you tolerate non-performance, you mollycoddle, and also you fall into micromanagement and upward delegation. None of those are good, and that diminishes the power of the people that you're paying good money to do the job. And there's a model that I love. It was developed by a TA psychologist called A.C. Troy, and it's called the Winner's Triangle. And it it describes how to avoid the drama triangle. So the drama triangle is the persecutor, the rescuer, and the victim. (laughs) And that describes virtually, I mean, it describes other people's misery, so you can feel more okay about yourself. And you know, fights that you have with your spouse that don't involve your spouse. And the winner's triangle, instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. Instead of being persecuting, you're assertive. And instead of being a rescuer, you're nurturing and empathic. Yeah. And if you operate and live and sell and manage from there, then you present consistently as authentic because you are being authentic. You accept responsibility for your mistakes. You apologize you seek forgiveness, you are willing to fail, you're willing to look stupid, you're willing to ask the naive question. And therein lies the big difference between B players and A players and C players and A players. The A players, in my experience, ask questions to deliver insight. Everyone else either asks questions to gather information or to gain understanding. That doesn't help the customer. And KPMG did some research uh, last year where CXOs were interviewed about their interaction with salespeople. And the conclusion was that only six minutes in every hour were deemed as adding value to the customer. It's amazing. Yeah, but not surprising, actually. This has been really engaging and very interesting. Thank you so much. No, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Excellent. And um, tell me, what, what are you reading, watching, listening to that's influencing your thinking at the moment? Uh, yeah, I, I, I've been reverting back to, to a lot of the philosophy stuff. I'm doing a lot of autobiographies. I really enjoyed Madeleine Albright's autobiography. There are so many t- people who are able, again, it's, I mean, it's a theme, isn't it, to, to admit that they make mistakes, that they got stuff wrong but then looked at how to solve it and how to rescue it. And if you can do that, there is so much you can learn from that. I mean, I read even Bill Clinton's biography, although at some point in time, a bit kind of over the top, but there are things in there. So I've completely converted to reading and, and watching documentaries about people, about their lives, about how they made decisions. That's the bit that I really enjoy doing at the moment. Fabulous. Anyone that stands out that you think would be a good read for leaders? Yeah, you know what? Julius Caesar. There are a couple of books about Julius Caesar that are absolutely amazing. Can you remember the authors? Uh, no. I'd have to, it's, it's, on my, <laughs> it's next to my bed, actually. Uh, I forgot the author of one of them. But I'll, it, you know, you, okay. there, are, there are so many. But just look at strategy, thinking, the change that he made why he made them. There's actually a very interesting, I mean, the acting is miserable, but there is a, it's, I think it's on Netflix, there is actually a, this series about the Roman Empire. That is a very good series too. And it deals with Caesar, deals with his dad, and how, how the dynamics work. 
Roman Empire was fascinating. You learn so much from that. Old cultures. It's a wrong example, but you know, everybody, the German Third Reich. Why was it the Third Reich? What was the second one and what was the first? People won't know, but the first one was the Roman Empire. By no means going to defend the third, the third one, because there was obviously so, but there was an ideology around thinking that happened in the Roman Empire, what you could learn from that and why they became so great. At the same time, why did it fail? Look at that stuff. In fairness, the comparison, they were both fairly fascist regimes. Yeah, of course. um, Okay, now, fascinating. Okay, so tell me this. You've got a golden ticket. You can go back and advise the idiot Pierre, aged 23, who thought he was invincible, immortal, and knew everything. What one choice bit of advice would you go back and whisper in his ear? (laughs) Probably keep those Amazon shares that you wanted to buy at that point in time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? Throw everything at it? Yeah, something like that. I don't know. I mean, we all make mistakes, don't we? Do I regret things? your best mistake then? My best mistake was there was this girl. (laughs) (laughs) Not entirely that day, no, 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 no. You know, I, you know, you make you make so many. I think I think I should have made some point in time in my career. I should have added my health outcomes to my skill set. I don't think it's necessarily a mistake, but pharmaceutical industry, how valuable and how uh, how strong is your position? Health outcomes. Is very. I should have done something about that. That's probably one thing that I should have changed. Would have changed. Interesting. So tell me, what are you wrestling with? What are you struggling with at the moment? My impatience in moving this medicinal cannabis market forward. Everybody knows where it is going. There are millions of people, millions of patients who would benefit from using medicinal cannabis. There are people who are doing it already on the black market for medicinal purposes. And you look at the Australian market, the US market, the Canadian market, they all take two or three years before they get established and things actually get moving. The UK is somewhere in the first half of that. And I just want to move it forward faster because we know where it's going. How do we overcome the hurdles? How do we overcome regulations? How do we change regulations to help all these people, these hundreds of thousands of patients who are out there? suffering from chronic pain, fibromyalgia, epilepsy, cancer pain, you name it, that would benefit from that. That's my making a difference. That's where it is. That's what I want to do. If you work in pharmaceutical industry, you need to care about patients. How are you galvanizing patients to mobilize them to put pressure on regulators and lawmakers? Yeah, it's, it's a fair challenge. It's also a very difficult one because compliance-wise, as a pharmaceutical company, you can't talk to patients. It's different in the US where you just go on TV and you just advertise what you have. In Europe, you can't do that. So for us to directly address patients is a very difficult thing to do. We do try to use social media. We try to find doctors who want to speak out. We try to get into the news, get into... TV programs, and one of my lead people in the team is our patient access manager. 
and he is very well connected to patient groups. And so we can work through patient groups. It's all very indirect. It's all very, and one of the one of the difficulties that we have is that only the bad examples find the news. You may have seen all these things in the media about these poor epilepsy kids whose parents have to spend 1,500 or 2,000 pounds a month to get the medicinal cannabis to reduce the number of seizures. And that's the bit that gets into the news. So a lot of people think that medicinal cannabis is, is going to cost 1,000, 2,000 pounds a month, which it's not. I mean, there are exceptions. Obviously, there are exceptions. But for the large group of patients with chronic pain or, or what I'm talking about, fibromyalgia, cancer pain, you're looking at a lot less, and it's actually quite affordable. But people are people are kind of by that thinking about ex, by how expensive it is, people are put off, and they don't go for it. So that's a message that we're trying to get out as within a couple of others too. I've been working with in partnership with three really phenomenal storytellers. One is a mathematical psychologist. Another one is the PR who specializes in telling the voice of the customer through the mouthpiece of the CEO. And uh, another one specializes in helping people to create their brand and get the story out there so that everybody is talking about it. One of the things that I've found in my own marketing is the content that makes the customer the hero, that allows people to put themselves into that story is incredibly powerful. I mean, if I put three to five posts out, I'll get a piece of business off the back of it. So what I tend to do is I write stories, which are dialogues between patient and doctor, or sufferer and uh, carer, uh, or patient and child, and have those stories go out there because they actually carry an awful lot of weight. Because for the last quarter of a million years, we've been sat around campfires telling stories. Great yeah. in the sky and you know, creation stories and all that kind of stuff. And the hero's journey is you have a protagonist who faces a problem, then they struggle, they hit a low ebb, they meet a guide, and then they go through peril and a few ups and downs and a few false starts, and then they come out the other end. Yeah. And those kind of stories seem to work incredibly well. I don't know whether or not that's something that you might be able to galvanize. We're trying, it's a very good point you make. So we're trying to do, we now start a series where we interview people who are involved in the medicinal cannabis world. Patients, doctors, companies that grow medicinal cannabis. And we, we do these four or five questions about who are you, what do you do, and why is it important? And give us examples, tell us that story. You're absolutely right. We're doing video interviews with them. And we'll start putting those on our website and social media somewhere from mid-May onwards, second half May onwards, because it is about that. It is about stories. You're absolutely right. People buy stories, isn't it? You can't fire us. The bards in the Middle Ages, people remember stories. The other thing about story is it affects both left and right brain. It tackles emotion, and it gives you the, uh, the reason, the justification through logic. Now, what's really important when you tell stories is you never make yourself or medicinal cannabis the hero. You have to make the patient the hero, and that's always the theme there. In my world, you have to make the customer the hero. If you make yourself in any way the issue, it reduces the value of the story and uh, it diverts their attention. It creates objections. 
I couldn't agree more. It's not about me. It's not about my company. It's not about what we do. It's about the patient on the other end and uh, what that does for them. I couldn't agree more with you. Excellent. Absolutely right. Pierre, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I can't... <laughs> oh, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Pierre, how can people get hold of you? Website, growpharma.com, or my LinkedIn profile. That's probably the easiest. Okay, so thank you so much. Pierre van Vepere, this has been an absolute joy. If you believe that you would make a great guest for my podcast, or you know of somebody who would be a really interesting guest who's been responsible for driving growth in rapid rates in technology, then I would love to talk to them or to you. Email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. Get in touch with me on my LinkedIn profile. And in the meantime, happy selling. Stay safe. Bye-bye.